Welcome to Open to Criticism, my podcast about how we talk about movies, who gets to do it, and why it matters. I'm Wendy Lloyd, and I'm a film critic. And this week, I'm talking to fellow critic Karen Krizanovich. Sex is a is an interesting, hugely complicated area that I think can only be subjective. It really does, if anything, what you say about a sex scene or what you don't say about a sex scene says a lot about you. The topic of on-screen sex is a big one, and it intersects with other issues, including, of course, on-screen violence. And it's something that I'll be returning to again on the podcast. So I thought I'd kick off Open to Criticism's sex talk, as it were, with a more general chat about sex on-screen and how we do and don't talk about it. I reached out to Karen Krizanovich because not only is she a long-standing film critic with additional vast experience researching and assisting in film production, she was also Dear Karen in Sky magazine back in the 90s. Dear Karen was an irreverent agony ant slash sex column which was decidedly of its time in a pre-Me Too world. I began by asking Karen about how the traditional male lens has impacted the way that we speak and write about sex on screen, especially when it comes to women. Before October the 5th, 2017, when the New York Times published its uh, Me Too investigation into film producer Harvey Weinstein. Um, oh, by the way, the Me Too hashtag was coined over a decade earlier Yeah. Uh, by um, Tarana Burke as a way for, for, for black women to talk about um, sexual violence. So that needs to be recognized. Definitely. I think I've noticed in criticism and also writing criticism that if you try to write in the old style, the old style saying um, the performer, she looks great, or you talk about some slightly sexualized appearance-led thing with her, then you'll get called out on it. Yeah. But strangely, it doesn't work in reverse yet, not yet. So if we talk about a man being really good-looking or parts of his body, that's great. We That seems to be okay, which is hypocritical. But, you know, one step at a time. I think that um, it's made us realize that films were, have been shot for decades, if not you know, much longer. Women were often cut up visually. Mm. Uh, we would see a woman's body or her legs or her backside or or even her chest or whatever as if to represent her sexuality but not really her it was like the sexuality was what was really important about her well it really kind of flags up the understanding of objectification doesn't it absolutely so we can we can reduce somebody to parts but not take into account what they are as a whole and i think that that's what we're looking at yeah, and that bit, that was so normalised. And I think it's really important for us to kind of um, remember that and have that kind of etched into our minds. And maybe for people who, who haven't, I don't know, watched as many older films and really, you know, understand that. But this whole kind of tradition of body parts of women and the fact that, you know, I was watching, there was the recent Storyville on the BBC about sex on screen. And it was talking to a lot of um, body double actors. Ah. And of course, a large part of their job, wasn't it, was the fact that they were wheeled in because like oh yeah you're the body double for the breasts and you're the body double for the buttocks and you know you 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 kind of see that and go wow how did we ever think that was okay 
Yeah, well, I mean, it comes from literature. It also comes from wanting to sell a movie. You know, how can you get people who have other things to do into a movie? Oh, show them a beautiful naked starlight. Hey, mm. I'll pay for that. Um, because you're not going to see it any any place else, or you, you wouldn't traditionally have seen it anywhere else. Um, it comes from literature as well, where we're, we're describing people physically and photography and, and other um, visual sources. It's very much about... Yeah, we think of Helen of Troy launched a thousand ships, you know. Mm. She wouldn't have done it if she was ugly. Is that true? I don't know. So I mean we, we have to we have to recognize that physical beauty is valued. Yeah. Always has been, always will be. Um more so now if the camera loves you, then you could look great in person, look lousy on the camera, and uh, I'm not really sure where your value is there. Um, traditionally speaking. Mm. And we're speaking the broad marketplace, which we are now trying to change. But it's never going to go back to you know, she she bakes a great cherry pie and is nice to my mother. You know, it's not going to sell. So I think what's what's important that we look at, just be aware that we can still talk about somebody's physical appearance, but we can't boil it down to the object. We can't just make them a great pair of legs. I mean, it makes you wonder about Betty Grable, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the legs insured for a million was yeah. a big deal. And you look at her legs, you think, yeah, they look nice, but they just look like legs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's all about context, though, isn't it? And as you, and as you pointed out, I think that's a really good point about you know, let's not get all prudish and ridiculous now and go, oh well, you know, no, let's not value beauty. But the fact that the focus has always very much been on um, women's beauty and women being more naked. Yes, the more naked, the better, the more alluring, and it's 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 simply because we enjoy titillation now. It's it's one of those things. It's like junk food to a certain extent. We're almost hardwired to kind of enjoy that kind of frisson because um, it's part of keeping the species going, I guess. Um, so we we have to recognize that that there is that selling point. But how we deal with that selling point is the issue. Mm. And and let's you know, and in, specifically in terms of criticism, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that historically we've allowed quite offensive tropes tied to sexuality and joked about them in a knowing way. You know, I'm thinking about you know large girls and large women being sexually humiliated as a comedy trope, yeah. or the horror trope of a young woman who has sex inevitably has to die in a completely gruesome way. Um, so I wonder how you feel about this whole idea of knowingness as critics. Has knowingness been a way for critics to distance ourselves from commenting on uncomfortable sexual representations? Because I think there's been a bit of that. When you say knowingness, you mean? I mean in terms of, well, as I said, you know, a trope is a kind of knowingness to some extent, isn't it? It's a shorthand. Okay, so we're left, we're talking about a motif or, or a theme. Yeah, yeah. This is, okay, the, the young, beautiful woman must die a terrible death, which, mm. frankly, I've never found entertaining. I know horror is important, but I don't want to watch a beautiful person being killed. It's not fun for me. And I know it is fun for other people, but that trope is just, I don't understand it. If I want to be scared, I'll park in a car park. Um, <laughs> but I think it's important to be knowing. I think it's important to show your knowingness so the, so the people who read your reviews or your criti- criticisms will also see that it's a thing. Mm. And this is something they should be aware of. And that makes them more educated when it comes to watching things. And I also think it automatically tells you what kind of quality you're watching. Um, I, I I like trashy comedies as much as the next person. I mean, I like Airplane. But I think 
if you're aware of something that is used, let's say, by low-budget filmmakers who want to make an entry into the the very expensive and competitive world of feature filmmaking, horror is the great way through. But be aware of those horror tropes and be aware of how well or how badly they can be used. Now, well or badly could be subjective, but I think if if it feels wrong to you and if you're really thinking about it, you'll be able to say that could have been handled better. I mean, we all know that there are smart horror movies and then there are not so smart horror movies. And I think as our part as critics and reviewers, and a critic is different to a reviewer, reviewer tries to get the right audience in where a critic picks apart the film and, and says, this is good, this is bad. I think that that's where we come, we come in and we are useful. But going back to um, so your point about how these tropes and motifs are useful cause, and if you understand what they mean, but uh, perhaps also my point in the question was our understanding of what those tropes mean and how, um, you know, how we can be okay with them has changed, you know. And as I said, especially when we go to the kind of comedy, it being very easy to make jokes about overweight people in the past without even thinking about it. Um, so I suppose that's what I mean in terms of in the past, we could roll with that as critics. The filmmakers could have that theme. We could roll with it. And now it's kind of, well, we can't, can we? Yeah. No, we, that's a really good point, Wendy, that where do these tropes come from? I mean, are we tying women to the railroad tracks for somebody to save her or for her not to be saved? I think it comes from, again, getting bums on seats. Yeah. Um, and I hate to take it back to the marketplace, but if you if you can't sell your movie, you're not going to make another one. And filmmakers, they want the films to be a success. So we want excitement. We want thrills. We want titillation, I suppose. But where do these hues of these tropes come from? And I think that violence against women, um, violence against men too, mm. violence in general, is something that we really do have to start looking at because it is rarely represented as what it would be in real life. I mean, it's not fun and it's not sexy. Uh, I know there are people that would disagree with me with that. So we really have to look at the, the uses of these tropes and not say that you should go around slashing women because it's it's fun and it's entertaining and, and we like you for it. So where did it come from? It came from trying to sell a movie to the broadest possible common denominator. So what we have to do now and what I think is happening now is we are changing the view of the quote unquote common moviegoer. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I wonder about how you think about it from your own personal history of criticism. I've been thinking in, in anticipation of talking to you today, I've been thinking about how I've critiqued sex in film over the years. Partly, I haven't actually done it that much because a lot of my stuff's been for broadcast daytime um, radio. So a lot of the time it's not been appropriate. But I've kind of come to the conclusion that I think I neglected it to do it in the way I do it now because I felt I was expected to either accept it as art and be okay with it or joke about it, but not to to be too discerning about it. I don't know how that resonates with you at all. I mean, my friend um, Fernando Augustus Pacheco uh, wrote an article recently about there not being enough sex scenes in movies, and he would like more. And it's 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 a clever article, <laughs> and I would encourage you to look it up. It's a, it's in Monocle magazine. Um, he's kind of addressing the the sexiness in in a good way, and I think that that's important to recognize. But for me, after years of watching 
watching sex on the big screen, there were lots of times when I felt uncomfortable. I think because I was identifying with the character and mm. maybe they were uncomfortable. And then there were some times when I thought, oh, this is this is really terrible scene. If this was happening to me, I would say, hey, wait a minute. No, <laughs> no, you're stopping right now because uh, number one, you're bad at this. <laughs> and number two, this is, I would really rather have a cup of coffee or something. But so, so I think you, you have to, if you're feeling uncomfortable, then I think unless the film is designed to make you uncomfortable, and there's plenty of those. Then I, then I think you have to start questioning, again, um, why it's there and also who, who the audience, who this film is supposed to be for. And I, I mean, cruelty, humiliation, I mean, you can, you can choose that as a fetish, I suppose, and there's plenty of films that will play on that. But for the overall making sex part of the story, I think it has to be a lot more, I don't want to say wholesome, that's not what I mean. It has to be a lot more realistic, understandable, and rational. But I would imagine because you have very um, confidently talked about sex, written about sex in your career, mm. that, you know, I'm, I'm wondering whether you have always felt comfortable writing about sex. Because as I said, for me, I feel like I'm only really considering it again in the light of Me Too, Time's Up. But is this something that you've always been quite clear about? Yeah, I think so. Mm. I think so. And that's because of the way I was raised. And my mother was very... Very, very open about sex. And I thought everybody's mother was. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I guess not. Um, but I feel very confident talking about it. But I don't find it. A lot of people find the fact that it's forbidden and hidden and something you don't talk about very exciting. And, mm. and I don't. So I, what I find exciting is is the individual iterations of of when you find anybody, find somebody that's on their wavelength. And that's exciting, which sounds Sounds really dull, but it is. It's fun, and I yeah. like the real life fun. So, so that's yeah. really what I want to talk about. But there are sex scenes that stick in my mind as being really good. Yeah. For example, um, Dennis Quaid, Dennis Quaid, and it was Ellen Barkin in The Big Easy, and it was a beautiful sex scene. And also, um, Sea of Love, Sea of Love. Okay, that was Al Pacino and Ellen Barkin in Sea of Love. And I thought that that was really nicely done. Those are the two that really stick in my mind without looking anything mm. up. Essentially, you talk there about, um, you know, the issue of sex actually being sexy in film and us actually recognising it as critics and, and, and mentioning it. Because, um, again, when I was thinking about this earlier, I kind of was thinking, well, my sense of the past, and, you know, perhaps it's an overgeneralisation, was that um, in the past the tendency was to acknowledge that a film was sexy only if the film was overtly and aggressively sexy. So I'm thinking something like Basic Instinct. Uh, yeah. You know, it was kind of like, oh, this is officially a sexy film that people felt comfortable talking about, weirdly. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, as you said, you know, you've got your examples there. For me, I found The English Patient very erotic. Oh, yes. 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 It was very, yes, it was very much so. But it's interesting you say that because I felt at the time, back in the late 90s, I kind of felt like I had to say that in a sort of jokey way. For me, when I think about it, I feel that that's indicative of, I don't know whether it's something to do with the idea that critics are supposed to be detached in some way. So we aren't supposed to bring in too much subjectivity, but sex is so subjective. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think, and I just noticed that Ellen Barkin starred in both of those films. Yeah. Um, which leads me to believe that she's just, she didn't need an intimacy coordinator. She was one. Right. Uh, can you imagine how, I like how that. good she was with that? But I, I think you're right. There, There is a certain amount of detachment when you approach sexuality. Number one, you don't want to admit that you found this scene 
pretty good. Yeah. I mean, do we all like Sharon Stone crossing your legs? Yes, because it's fun. And and also, um, everybody always goes freeze frame, the same sort of thing they used to say about Jamie Lee Curtis um, mm. in um, Trading Places. But it, and, and that was jokey. That's just very jokey. And we joke about stuff we're uncomfortable with. Mm. Because we can't deal with it in any other way. So me saying that I found that these two scenes that I mentioned from a million years ago really engaging and memorable is because I found that I felt myself going into that scene rather than trying to pull out of that scene. Mm. I think that's a, that's a really good point, isn't it? Because like you said earlier, if you're watching something that makes you feel uncomfortable, you you will kind of pull back. Um, but if something feels good, but it's this idea of us feeling as critics and responding in a feeling way. Are we allowed to? No, no, <laughs> critics don't have feelings. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? That's the endless debate. <laughs> no, it is. And, and also when I hear people have feelings about movies, I don't want to know. I mean, it's people going, well, you know, I had a Mars bar before I came into the movie and then I had a, my foot was kind of hurting and like, no, I don't care, dude, just, just tell me about the movie. I think it's difficult to separate your own personality from, because of course that's your POV and that's what you're working with. It's difficult to separate that from what you're talking about. But I think a good reviewer and a good critic will think about who they're writing for and try to keep it as general as possible while having insights that other people can grasp and use or reject. Yeah, you, you, you're going to bring some of yourself to the table. Have to. That's, you know, kind of, I think from all the many people and critics that I've interviewed in recent years, um, although there's been really differing views on how we approach it and what's appropriate or not, that's kind of in there to differing degrees is that ultimately we cannot not bring ourselves to it, yes. But with sex... But, but sex is power. Sex is power. Yeah. Sex is vulnerability. Sex is danger. Um, sex could be the beginning of a family, a new life. Sex could be... Um, humiliation and control. And it's unlike, let's say, watching a a movie about a chef. You know, we all have to cook food. And it's not funny talking about that. You know, we don't have a problem with that. Sex, I think, is so much to do with our identity and our ego. Yeah. Um, why do we buy nice clothes? Why do we buy sports cars? Uh, we want to be sexy. We want to be looked at. And I think it really does channel into how we feel about ourselves right at the base of our own notion of ourself. I mean, what we what we go home with. I think it, it really does tap into a part of us that we feel we don't have any uh, protection for. Well, especially if then we kind of express an opinion about it, that yeah. actually exposes a vulnerability, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, because yes, it you're does. basically saying, I find this erotic or I don't. And, and in fact, it's arguably it's harder to say what you, especially as a critic, it's harder to say what you do like um, sexually erotically on screen than to just dismiss stuff as, as, as rubbish or, or very poorly done or what have you, isn't it? Because it's about your vulnerability. Well, being negative is always easier. Well, exactly. Being positive, you, you start, you start going, oh, you know, this is great. And then people tune out. I think, yeah, absolutely. We can't be seen to, to enjoy these scenes. And I don't know, I don't know why. That's it's interesting. Why can't we enjoy a sex scene? Why can't we enjoy? I mean, I have to say, Basic Instinct was quote unquote a sexual movie, mm. but I'm pretty sure Verhoeven made it into a comedy thriller, <laughs> and it just didn't have underpants. And I think that was the the main thing. Although she was amazing, though, going oh, female power. Yes, but 
you know. Still very much male lens. Still very much male lens, but also a lot of violence. Yeah. So let's look at violence in general and not who is particularly perpetrating it. Yeah. But I, th- I think sex is a is an interesting, uh, hugely complicated area that I think can only be subjective because I've read a lot of critics talking about a sex scene and I I really disagree. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because I think, oh, dear, that's a really boring thing to say. Or, <laughs> oh, that's that's twisted. You like that? Yeah. You know, so I think it really does, if anything, what you say about a sex scene or what you don't say about a sex scene says a lot about you. Yeah. Which is why there is that discomfort in revealing it mm. in the first place, I guess. Absolutely. You've mentioned Basic Incident again, which is wonderful because it enables me to move on to the fact that in preparing for this interview with you, Karen, I um, had a lot of fun today looking through your columns from Sky Magazine yeah. from the 1990s where you were described as the Sharon Stone of Agony Ants. Um, and reading through them today, I have to say, they remain completely laugh-out-loud funny. Oh, thank you. But even though they were... And they remain, and they are very female sex positive. Do you think they could be written and that you could write them now? Yeah, I have to t- I talk about this a lot. Uh, people are saying, oh, you should do them again. Uh, uh, <laughs> some of them are funny, and I was, I don't think, I mean, they, they do take the mickey out of people, but out of everybody, hopefully. Could I write them now? I think I could with the comments turned off. <laughs> well, I was going to say that. Yeah, that's a, it's a, there's a big, a very different context and environment to put it out into, isn't it? It was very different then. I mean, you know, people, people, it would take weeks for them to write a letter to me to complain, <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't get it anyway because they kept them at the magazine. And I, ever since I, I opened some and that were not very nice. I mean, they were had items in them, and uh, I, oh my yeah, I decided I wasn't going to open any more yeah. replies. But I still think. It treated sex very lightly, probably without any sense of the care and respect I think about it now. Because I think that you have to laugh at yourself and be honest and be bold. Um, Yeah, no, and I'm with you because then, of course, what we haven't sort of specified there and is obviously key to the context is the 90s lad culture, which both you and I, you know, were working as women throughout. And, you know, there was this distinct pressure, wasn't there, for women to be sexy, and it was passed off as empowerment for us. And I, you know, felt it was interesting kind of tapping back into that time reading your columns this morning, you know, and just feeling that you were very much a voice of female sexual confidence, that was actually about taking no shit, mainly from men. And it was it was very different from a lot of the things out there at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I treated everybody with equal contempt, I suppose. I thought everybody, if you're shy and you're feeling cowardly, then I would just say, oh, you're being silly, just get on with it. Um, and I, th- I th- hopefully that applied to everybody, but I did get a lot of stupid letters. And I think with the la- lad culture, not only said, oh, we, you know, women have to be sexy, they really, but I thought that men also had to get dumber. There was something about the 90s where a smart, guy, unless he was reviewing sound equipment um, or cars, you know, men were not allowed to be smart. And it, it was just really strange or sensitive. You know, men couldn't, couldn't definitely not sensitive. put their hands up and say, hey, that's wrong. I don't like that. You know? yeah. And the age that we're in now, I think, is a big redressing. It's swinging really far one way and the other side is fighting. And so it's, we're going to extremes. And I hope that it shapes out 
and comes back to maybe not where Dear Karen was, because I think Dear Karen on the whole was funny and irreverent and didn't damage anybody, as far as I know. I mean, people kept People still do come up to me and say, you published one of my letters and it changed my life, which was not nice. Wow. But pinning you down on, you know, because obviously what we're talking about here is also what I've done is I've put you on the spot, basically, in terms of trying to, you know, look back and revise how we talked about sex in the past. Um, but ultimately what we're talking about, you know, and we're talking about now is is how are we critiquing um, sex on film now? How much can we kind of learn from the past and revise what went on in the past? Or do we just have to kind of put our best foot forward? I, th- I think I think we can learn a lot from the past. We can learn about how not to do it. We can, we can look at old reviews from our favorite writers and not favorite writers, our popular writers possibly. Mm. And even, even some of the academic writers. I mean, you could go to Sight and Sound or any of those um, and, and look and see how they talked about it. And do we want to emulate that? Is there anything that we can we can pick and choose from from what they've written? And we can also put our best foot forward and state what we're thinking. Um, this was supposed to be an artistic film, but I felt uncomfortable, and this is why. I think you can't just say I feel uncomfortable and not say why. I think you have you have to point out what it is, and that way people can go, well, I agree with you, or I don't agree with you. And I think that we will, of course, have disagreement. But to be aware of the basically dehumanizing aspect of something that is incredibly important to all species is just mind-boggling. Uh, but I'm saying, again, this is a long line of history that we're trying to address in this little blip in time. And so I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, there is, as you said, there's so much going on right now. And I'm aware, preparing to do these interviews for this podcast, that I'm always having to try and keep it in the zone of criticism because there's so much going on in the much wider film industry, media and culture at large. So honing it down is quite interesting. But I, I am going to bring in because I think, again, it's it kind of... Um, it alludes to what you're talking about there, which is in terms of how much is going on. You know, we've got this current lawsuit, haven't we, with Paramount Pictures. It's ongoing. Actors Olivia Hussey and Leonard Whiting, who were teenagers at the time of filming uh, Romeo and Juliet for Franco Zeffirelli back in 1968. They're now suing the studio for $500 million for child abuse, arguing that they were forced into a doing a semi-nude scene. So this is over 50 years ago. Um, but it could perhaps have, you know, some potentially far-reaching ramifications for other studios, couldn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think they're very brave for coming forward. Um, I, there's a, there's an argument to be made for, for both sides, I think. There were a lot of stories about Zeffirelli um, that I've heard I've heard personally, and I'm sure there's some in print as well, that Olivia Hussey and Leonard Whiting, you know, they, they were 15 and 16. Yeah. And there was this understanding that they'd signed a release to the producers, well, there, I'm pretty sure there wasn't such a thing back then. And if there was, it was something vague and contractual. So I think even though this scene made their career, I don't want to say made their career, but was was one of the, the great points of their careers. Uh, I think the fact that they feel that they have to say something, I think that's important to look at. Yeah. Because it's obviously still on their mind. I don't think they were put up to do this by any legal person. And I'm pretty sure they're in sane you know, mind and body. So I think that we have to look at the ramifications of the fact that film lives forever. Yeah. Just like the internet. <laughs> and and if you do something, you'd better be pretty sure about it. And how many things do you feel sure about? 
I mean, I, I buy paint swatches and change our mind every day. So I think it's really important that we look at this and we can say they didn't have that opportunity they didn't have that awareness because we didn't really have – it wasn't okay no. to say, I don't want to do it. And for people that did say that, it, you know, they didn't have a career or they went and did something else. Absolutely. And so it was a much, much different um, place to, to make choices. And I still think now, even though we are looking at this post-Me Too, um, I still think that people that don't play the game, whatever the game is, are often sidelined. Yes. And there's different power for different people in terms yes. of what they can do in terms of the game. So yeah, it's really important, isn't it? And in terms of, again, bringing it specifically to criticism, it's perhaps also a reminder for us that, you know, another reason why it's really worth our while thinking carefully about how we really interpret something or um, talk about something and contextualise things or whatever. Because as you said, these reviews will remain on the internet and, you know, times will change. Things will be looked back upon. And if the only thing we're guilty of is taking a very considered view at the time, which maybe has shifted, that's okay, isn't it? But if we neglected to really critique, I suppose, with all that we knew at the time, that's when things get problematic. But there's a, there's a, there are a couple other issues too. We have editors. Yeah. And the times that I've turned in reviews for Radio Times, for example, and they've edited stuff, and I don't write for them anymore because they've told me that I don't write in their style anymore. And mm. I think, well, okay, fine. Um, they have asked me to rewrite uh, reviews that are in their big book. Uh, for example, Bridesmaids had to be rewritten to address the the new attitude. Right. Uh, so so there is a revisionism going on, which is which is good. And what, yes, yeah, so what do you think about that? Because that, so presumably it's revising a review you did at the time and, and not explaining to anybody reading it that this is updated or, or post Me Too review or not? I'm not sure because I've kind of fallen out with them a little bit and I kind of don't care <laughs> to a certain extent. It's, I, th I think there was one line that they didn't like and I, I can't remember exactly. I'd have to go back on my notes, but I'm wondering if other critics are having to do that. But how do you feel about that? Great. Okay. That's great. I mean, I don't know if I could do that to, to dear Karen, but I do think that um, I'm lucky because I'm still alive and I'm able to do it. Yeah. There are critics that are dead that can't go back and maybe they wouldn't want to change it, but they are going to be judged and you can't say, but at the time this was okay. Yeah. So I th I think you you have to write your best review, put in what you want, and hope that the editor keeps it. Yeah. So in terms of for critics then and better critiquing on screen sex, I mean, what would you say then? How do we balance everything? What do we prioritize? Is it the sexiness? Because as you said, you know, are we actually neglecting the sexiness of sex on screen? Or do we need to focus on the appropriateness of any sex, bearing in mind the post Me Too Time's Up era? Well, I think we're, we're at a stage now where we're starting to be able to appreciate sexiness. It's it's almost like certain eras in the women's movement, which has had many eras, um, where they're saying, "Well, you know, if you're a really serious feminist, you 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 know you, you can't have a sense of humor." I think I think we're moving on now, where we can say, "Yeah, you know, it's sexy," because we can say why it's sexy, and hopefully, it's sexy for a good reason. But um, I, th I think appropriateness is incredibly important, incredibly important, mm. particularly between, let's say, e equals on screen and nobody's being predated. It's supposed to be a meet cute or whatever. And I, I think it's really important that 
uh, it's appropriate and that and that it looks fun and it looks it looks inviting. Uh, if it's awkward and funny, fine, but I don't think it should be scary unless it's meant to be scary. And then you ask yourself, why is it scary? Is this is this sex scene in a horror movie to lead to something else? Uh, because sex can be scary. Um, so I think we have to ask about the context of it, but definitely appropriate if if it's a romance. Yeah, I, I hate to because you know we're mixing so many genres, particularly with with um, let's say everything everywhere. I'd hate to say it was just to, just a drama or a comedy. Yeah, we're getting <laughs> films that are big lumps of everything. So, which is great. So I th- I think both of those things are really really important, and I also would urge critics to to speak up. Try not to be too strident, and try and take a longer view. It's very easy, particularly when you're a young critic. You want to make your you want to make your name by being a gunslinger. You want to rip rip apart anybody's creativity. I've been there. I know it's fun, but and you think, well, I can really say this, and and it's it's a wonderful power. But think about ten years on. Think about the filmmaker. Um, think about how people are going to view you. And I think it's important to try and be as wise as you can be. Krizanovich there on the subject of on-screen sex in the Me Too era. That's just about it for this week. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and rate Open to Criticism wherever you listen to your podcasts. And a review on Apple would be very much appreciated. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Open to Criticism, where two is the number two. Next week, I speak to academic and author of several books on film criticism, Matthias Fry, about the history of film criticism and how many issues that plagued its past are still very much in play today. The concept of legitimacy or authority, um, as I call it in my, my book, is really the linchpin of the identity of the critic. On the one hand, they're the, they're the representative of the public. On the other hand, they're the pedagogue of the public. And, and this is the key tension. So how do you as a critic stay one step ahead of the audience without losing that audience? Open to Criticism is written, produced and presented by me, Wendy Lloyd, with original music by Hamish Clark. Thanks for listening. Listener.